Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stop Look, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me in today's episode are Mike and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about how the Elon Musk fiasco has the potential to completely ruin Twitter as a company. The fallout from the Uber files leak and the viability of the ride-sharing industry as a whole. And why you can expect to hear a lot of talk about the strength of the dollar versus the euro this earnings season. Mike and Marie, welcome to this week's Stock Club. Before we start off, I'm just going to repeat my usual spiel. We have an extended version of the Stock Club podcast in the My Wall Street app now that you can listen to for free. In this extended version, either Mike or Anne-Marie are going to give us the full pitch for the company that they're giving the elevator pitch for at the end of the show. As I said, you can listen to this completely for free. All you have to do is go to the My Wall Street app, set up an account, and you can find that episode along with all of our past episodes and our first looks, which are made from our elevator pitches. You can find all of that in the my wall street app now uh guys i was going to start this off by saying welcome to the hottest episode of stock club ever and not for any sexy <laughs> reasons it's just that it's incredibly hot here in dublin and you're in dublin too so i'm going to assume you're roast and mike what's it like over on the other side of ireland i just want to rewind to not for any sexy reasons. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good sentence um, sorry uh no the heat's the heat's gone east uh we had our Day in the sun. Yeah, you've got a big day on Sunday though, don't you? Oh, 100%. What do you think the score is going to be? Oh, well, we're definitely underdogs. So I'd say we'll only win by about six or seven. We'll see. (laughs) All of our American (laughs) listeners are like, what are these guys talking about? (laughs) We're talking about dollar and football final. Uh, Google it if you're not sure what it is. Anne-Marie, do you have any any skill in the game? Do you have any interest? Um, Not in this All Ireland final, when I was a kid and I would come to Ireland for the summers, my uncles used to take me to like the All Ireland quarterfinal when Dublin would be playing. So I have about, and then it meant that subsequently any birthday or Christmas that came up, my uncles would just buy me a Dublin jersey. So at my in my closet at home in Colorado, I have about ten Dublin GAA jerseys just so, sitting from such Lake a classic Illinois. dub. Just don't even pay attention to All Ireland finals. Yeah. You've won so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> you can sense my bitterness yeah. as a Kildare man. Uh, let's move on to more stock yeah. market related stuff. Uh, we, we're probably losing the room here. So before we get into our main stories this week, I just want to touch on, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. Last night, Netflix reported its quarter two earnings. And these were ones that people were really, really watching closely after the disaster that was its quarter one earnings a couple of months ago. Netflix, the top line he- headline, I suppose, was that Netflix lost almost 1 million subscribers. But funnily enough, people seemed actually pretty happy with that. Stock was up in pre-market trading um, as we record. What do you guys think of the report? How, how did this sound from Netflix? Anne-Marie, what were your thoughts? I was actually pretty impressed considering that management went into the quarter and predicted that they were going to lose 2 million subscribers. So to cut that number by 50% is pretty significant. And they also projected that they will be returning to subscriber growth next quarter. So uh, it's not too bad. I was also really impressed with the statistics that came out about Stranger Things. I mean, I have maybe a more long-term worry that Stranger Things only has one season Mm. left. But 
I think it's in some ways legitimized Netflix's strategy that they can find original IP and make it maybe as big as a Marvel TV show release on Disney Plus or something like that. Um, I was also impressed to see um, that because they broke up Stranger Things' release and did a staggered method, which I had written about maybe a month ago or two months ago when Netflix kind of got in hot water when its first quarter for this year came out, I, I suggested maybe they need to look into staggering releases to build anticipation and kind of, you know, get the, that excitement going. And it was interesting to see them do that with Stranger Things. And they actually crashed the server in the United States. So many people were trying to watch the wow. second um, part of the fourth season. So I definitely, it definitely shows that there is still an audience for Netflix content. Hold, if hold on a minute now. Find the artist to make so- it. Staggered releases, uh, advertising coming into the platform. Is Netflix not just reinventing normal television, Mike? Yeah. Well, they didn't really tell you much about the advertising, did they? Like, yeah. I thought that was... I, fair enough, I suppose. But this was kind of the earnings report where you expect more information. And it kind of just said, like, limited markets, maybe 2023. Maybe we might tell you something then. Yeah. Um. So that was a small bit disappointing. But I kind of would parrot Amory's point about... Netflix have kind of always said that either like saying it outright or through their actions that, you know, the content makes up for everything else. And we saw this with basically predicting they'd lose 2 million and lose 1 million because Stranger Things is so popular that 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 does pay off. That attitude and that strategy does pay off. So it is interesting to see. I think as a whole, they're, they're going to stay on top in terms of straining. Mm. I think it's just maybe is streaming's popularity in general at stake. And I think that's what the market has kind of kind of priced in recently. Um so yeah, we'll see. It's a long yeah. way to go to kind of I've, I've seen ads on television now for Paramount Plus here in Ireland, which uh, we usually get things last. So it really shows the kind of saturation <laughs> of the market. Uh let's move on though. That's not what we're here, we're here to talk about this week. Uh, it feels like we've had a few glorious weeks away from this topic, but of course we've been dragged back in to the Elon Musk and Twitter fiasco, I think we can safely call it now. So as I'm sure half the world knows by now, Musk has decided that he actually doesn't want to buy Twitter anymore. He notified the company two weeks ago that he wanted to pull out of the deal because they didn't give him enough relevant business stats regarding spam accounts, according to him. Twitter, of course, isn't taking this lying down. The company's moving to sue Musk itself into, into actually buying the company for the previously agreed upon price of about 44 billion dollars uh mike this is this has been a long run running saga and i have a feeling it's going to continue long running musk has recently made some attempts to delay this lawsuit but it looks like it's going to play out in court now in october um what are your initial thoughts on this why why was he trying to push out the lawsuit well you can as 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 we were wont to do when i start talking on this podcast we put on our tinfoil hats for a minute okay um <laughs> No, but one of the easy outs for Musk from this deal is if his financing falls through. So his legal team tried to get it pushed, the trial pushed to February 2023 and have this big prolonged court case. Whereas I think he has guarantees on some of the loans he got up until April 2023. So that would kind of solve all his problems there. Okay. Two things are kind of happening. And one of them is mostly in elon musk's head um <laughs> where he wants to make this trial about bots and spam accounts when it just isn't it's better about whether or not he can walk away from this deal and which i don't really think he can if he did his due diligence before committing 44 billion dollars to this kind of something measuring contest uh like normal people would and he had these conversations with twitter before and maybe if twitter guaranteed that's a five percent or less 
of the accounts on the platform are actually spam or bots, then maybe this legal case has a leg to stand on. Yeah. Maybe. But it doesn't. That's not that's not what happened. There was no mention of bots in the acquisition. The only legal base basis Musk kinda can rely on is um if Twitter basically provided falsified accounts in its SEC filings. Mm. So this would be based around what Twitter says to the SEC about bots. Uh, so it says, in its own words, it uses significant judgment, to, <laughs> significant judgment to figure out about 5% or less of its accounts are bot, bots. Now, what this is saying is that Twitter doesn't know how many bots it has on, it has on the platform. Um, it could well be more than 5%, but according to the process it, it uses internally, yeah. it's 5% or less. Doesn't guarantee this figure anywhere. It's an estimate, but what kind of has triggered Musk is the process itself. And in truth, it isn't great for a company of Twitter status. Like it has human reviewers going through a sample of a hundred random accounts every day, using their own discretion to decipher if they're spam accounts or not. So it's kind of amateur hour. And obviously yeah. this disgusted Elon who was shocked. There was no AI or machine learning or yada yada or whatever. <laughs> Brain but that doesn't but that doesn't mean Twitter has done anything wrong. You know, the trial should not be about bots. No mention of bots before the acquisition. And actually, with the judge ruling in favor of the expedited trial, we're on Tuesday, on Tuesday, so yesterday, it doesn't look like it will be either. It will be about the acquisition itself, which yeah. probably doesn't fare too well for Musk. I, a lot of people have, commentators have also said, you know, the recent market downturn and the fact that Tesla shares are down close to 30% since the offer was made. The fact that the value of Twitter itself has now fallen below, well below the price that kind of Musk agreed to pay back in April is part of the reason too. Do you think that's a, a fairly ser- fair assessment? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it could be. I think, mm, part I think of the finding, reason, probably. Yeah, I think finding out how the bots were processed definitely triggered Musk. I think... We're taking in kind of the tech stocks crashing right after he made what was then a lowball offer, which is now quite expensive. Tesla stock falling concurrently as well has made it again relatively more expensive because he has less money. There are theories that this is kind of all an elaborate plot to get away with selling a bunch of his Tesla stock. I'm I'm not sure if you go through this many steps to do so. I'm not sure if you raise the financing. If that's your goal, there's also talk that this is kind of a negotiation tactic to get Twitter back to the table and make maybe get a cheaper deal. But he's burnt an awful lot of bridges to do that. And like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's dragged Twitter's name through the mud time and time again. And now with this, like uh, going through the bots and everything as well, it's just it doesn't seem like he. it seems like he just wants an exit strategy. So, yeah, I'm not and- sure. You mentioned like Twitter's name being dragged through the mud there. And you said, you know, there's a fairly significant chance probably that he will be forced to buy this company. Surely as, you know, Twitter itself and also Twitter investors, this isn't great for the company either. It's kind of a lose-lose situation. Elon Musk got her back to the deal or they have somebody buy the company who clearly does not want to buy the company. No, it's awful. It's awful (laughs) for everyone. So we we misquoted Emmett with the, wrestling with the pig and then you realize the pig is starting to enjoy it uh, <laughs> yeah. analogy but it it's you said it all it's a little it's a lose-lose situation where twitter's name has been dragged through the mud this manhood for bot accounts could severely damage its reputation amongst advertisers and it, if the deal doesn't go through the stock is going to plummet too so you're wrecking shareholder value there as well i think what has happened is that in trying to get the deal done 
Twitter's board is trying to at least salvage that shareholder value. Yeah. But long term, for Twitter as a platform and as a business, it doesn't look good, which is such a middle finger to everyone because Musk and his grandstanding and the importance of Twitter as a town square and all that BS has actually led to the complete degradation of the platform he ha- he himself has put on such a pedestal. So, yeah, it's it's a complete mess and I don't really know where it goes from here. Yeah, it's hard to see what's going to happen next. What do you think, Anne-Marie? Do you think Musk was ever really serious about buying Twitter? No, I think on the podcast like four weeks ago, I was like, this deal is never going to go through. It's not going to happen. <laughs> well, so we'll have to I was in some ways delighted to, <laughs> I was delighted to see that collapse. I know I actually said it maybe three days before it happened to myself and Nicole were on an outside podcast and we, I was asked about the Twitter deal with Elon Musk and I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. And then like th- three days later, it was announced. So it's just very ridiculous. I do think in some ways it might be, this might be the end of the kind of cult-like following to some degree that Elon Musk has because this is so ridiculous yeah. that maybe it kind of allows people to see that he's not on top of it all the time. I think sometimes people allow Elon Musk to get away with really crazy things because they assume he has some sort of insider knowledge and he's going to pull it off in the end. Mm. So it's been kind of nice to see that that image of him be destroyed <laughs> to some degree. I love it, yeah. but it's terrible for Twitter shareholders. If I like, if I was a Twitter yeah. shareholder, I'd be very frustrated because the platform still exists and is still used and there's still you know tens of millions hundreds of millions of people that enjoy using twitter and it's definitely an interesting platform and it probably is a platform that could do with another person coming in and trying to figure out how do you make money from this how do you make this experience better but i don't think that person was ever going to be elon musk to be honest yeah it's it's whatever whatever feelings you might have about elon musk destroying his own personal image destroying two well one possibly two companies in the process uh isn't fantastic to see speaking of shady management practices let's move on to uber so they've been in the firing line for all the wrong reasons recently after more than 124,000 confidential company documents were leaked to the guardian newspaper in the uk by a former chief lobbyist for the company in Europe. The files mainly covered the five-year period when Uber was run by its founder, Travis Kalanick, who is an entire different story to himself that I think we've covered on, on podcasts a couple of years ago. He's a bad dude. Yeah, he's, he's not bad apple. He's not a great. nasty piece of business. Wow. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, what was uncovered in the papers was not pretty. Um, Anne-Marie, Uber's long been one of probably the most controversial companies out there in terms of the personalities that run the company. Cough, cough, Travis Kalanick, some of the stuff that goes on within the company, but also its business practices and you know the effects it has on the markets it goes into, the way it treats its drivers, a, a whole host of things. Um, how much bad? What was the most noteworthy thing that came out of the leaks that somehow sullied Uber's image more? Yeah, there were kind of my. I had two two bullet points that were my favorite. The first was that in 2016, uh, the company invested 90 million dollars in a lobbying and public relations effort, with the idea behind it being they wanted to recruit friendly politicians, and they had an overarching goal of disrupting Europe's taxi industry. That was what they were going after, and um, this saw them achieve some face to face meetings with some pretty important people, kind of the world's foremost politicians. So Kalanick actually met with then Vice President Joe Biden. At the World Economic Forum in uh, 2015. And apparently he was really rude to Joe Biden, like really rude. And Joe (laughs) Biden never met with him again. 
But Uber executives also achieved meetings with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, with Irish Taoiseach Enda Kenny, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and with George Osborne, who at the time was the UK's chancellor. And some of these meetings bore actual fruit. So a great example of this was when taxi drivers went on strike and began to riot in Paris in response to Uber launching there. Um, Kalanick ordered French executives to retaliate by encouraging Uber drivers to stage a counter protest. And Uber executives went to Kalanick and they were like, this is not a good idea. Um, the taxi rioting had actually been triggered by extreme right wing thugs who had kind of infiltrated the protest. And they went to Kalanick and they were like, you can put Uber staff at risk by encouraging this behavior. And he said, quote, I think it's worth it. Violence wow. guarantees success. And these guys must be resisted. No, that's an exact quote that they pulled from an email of his. That's like if that was in a if that was a Bond villain said that you'd be like, no, that's a bit overdramatic. <laughs> I don't, don't really. Yeah, that. Like he should be holding a white yeah. hat. <laughs> it while he while he delivers that line and all the while it was also revealed in these documents that emmanuel macron who was the president of france was in direct communication with kalanick while these riots were going on and according to the guardian it appears that he went to extraordinary lengths to help uber during this period and that's pretty significant and in other countries he enlisted the backing of really powerful figures so in russia italy and germany there is evidence that uber offered prized financial stakes in the company and they offered to turn some people into quote strategic investors which is very fancy language for saying bribery to be yeah. honest <laughs> sounds a lot like free money <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but I mean, it is, I suppose it is worth mentioning that not all of Uber's efforts were met warmly. So Uber officials met with now German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, who at the time was the mayor of Hamburg, and he pushed back against Uber lobbyists and insisted that you needed to pay the drivers minimum wage, which meant then two days after this meeting, some Uber executives were discussing it via WhatsApp. And they said that, that Scholz was a real comedian. Oh. Which is not a great reflection of your company mm. when you refuse to pay your drivers minimum well, not, wage. Not even that you refuse, but the prospect of it is a joke. It's laughable, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. good. And uh, my kind of second bullet point that I, I, I loved that came out of this leak is it revealed that the company used, quote, stealth technology to fend off government investigations by installing kill switches in all Uber servers across the globe. So this meant that when police would raid facilities, particularly in European countries, to search for evidence of, of bribery or participation with the government, um, they could hit a kill switch and it would basically cut off all the servers and delete all the information so that people couldn't conduct any sort of investigation. And this has meant that legal experts said that these actions could raise questions about obstructing justice in France, the Netherlands, India, and Hungary. So there might be some investigations coming Uber as well. All in all, not a great look for Uber. But of course, it's important, I suppose, to mention that a lot of this happened a number of years ago. Um, there's obviously a new CEO in place now. I know the company's done a lot of work and kind of rehabilitating its image. Do you think you know this is a, a fair reflection of Uber as a company today? The BBC, in response to the leak, said that it was an example of the ruthless business methods of Uber's previous CEO, Travis Kalanick. Yeah. So I do think it's more of a reflection of him um, than it is of the company. It's it's important to remember that he was forced out of Uber because he created such an incredibly toxic environment that it was unsustainable. Tens of thousands of employees exited Uber um, in the months leading up to his he basically being forced out by the board, even though he controlled the vast majority of the voting shares. Um, Uber 
uh, several days ago actually did put out a response to the Guardian leak saying that the company did make mistakes prior to 2017, but these have already been reported um, at length. And it culminated in, quote, one of the most infamous reckonings in the history of corporate America. So Uber does seem to have an acknowledgement that this period is not something that it's proud of, and it feels that it has dealt with that. Uber also said that Kalanick's successor, who's, we have to, this last name, Dara Kosharahi? Yeah, I just went, I went with new CEO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wrote it down phonetically. I think we're close. Um, Uber basically said he was tasked with transforming every aspect of how Uber operates, operates, and it is a different company today. And to be fair to him, he has a 92% approval on Glassdoor, um, and he did remove a significant number of executives when he came in. It does seem to have been kind of a, a, a clean sweep. So yeah. um, we have yet to hear about any bribing of government officials, but you never know. Yeah, we might get another leak in a few years' time. But one thing that really struck me kind of reading through the reports in these files was the fact that that Uber was putting on the government here in Ireland, which was obviously of of local interest to us. More than five years later, Uber still failed to launch here along with other key European markets. And it's facing increasing regulation and competition in the markets where it does exist. Kind of putting our investor hats back on, I suppose. What does this say about the ride-sharing industry as a whole? Uber is a company I know we constantly kind of look at. We're constantly reading about it. When its earnings come out, we would pay attention to it. Do we really see a future in this ride-sharing industry that seems to be getting more and more compressed? To be honest, I, like I think this report and, and, and other reports that we have heard recently in, in terms of Uber and other ride-sharing apps really does prove that the business model is only viable, particularly in major cities, if you're cutting quarters or you're subsidizing rides. There's no other way to pull this type of this thing off. And um, a great example of that is if we look at uh, taxi licensing, which is something that you have to have in most major cities in the United States. You need to be li- licensed to be a taxi driver. Those can be very, very expensive. Um, in New York in particular, it's very expensive. You need to have a taxi driver medallion. And in 2014, prior to Uber's launch there, it cost a million dollars to get a taxi right. medallion. But the reason they're so expensive is that there's a very finite number of them. And in order for you to buy one, you have to find a taxi driver who's retiring and you buy it from him. The the benefit of these taxi medallions is that it guaranteed these people a right to work and it basically guaranteed them a livable wage because there was a limited number of taxi drivers. It also was basically their retirement Mm. plan because it meant that when you got to the end of your career, you know, you're 65 and you sell your medallion on, then you get to take that income. And many of them are living off of that. As soon as Uber launched in the city, this this entire industry was decimated, and consequently, ninety six thousand cab drivers of New York City are suing Uber um, over basically them being debt ridden. I've read stories of of uh, taxi drivers in New York who have six hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars in debt that they now have no way to pay off wow. because Uber has taken their jobs. And you know, it's just a, a reminder that you know f- regulation sometimes is needed. For, for certain industries. You know, if you flood the market with all these drivers who are willing to take on a couple hours a day, it means that everyone is just getting a small amount. Yeah. It means you can't have drivers who their entire livelihood is driving a car. And so that has now kind of come full circle, particularly in the case of New York, because there's actually now a driver shortage in New York City because all these taxi drivers began to retire or go into other industries. And so Uber, about three months ago, was forced to strike a deal with the yellow cab companies of New York to put all the taxi cabs on Uber's app because Uber couldn't find enough drivers who were willing to use their own vehicles, and uh, the taxi cab companies had basically created such a, a, a public issue that many people were refusing to use Ubers altogether, and they were getting back into cabs. And we've seen the exact same thing happen in London, where as Uber began to raise fees in the cities, people are going back to the classic black taxi cabs. Yeah. And so... In my view, it's just a reminder that like Uber was only ever disruptive in places that didn't have a traditional regulated 
like taxi industry. And that's places like college towns or smaller cities. For example, like I grew up in Denver and we do not have this kind of taxi culture. The city is spread off, spread up over a much further, further distance. So, you know, it, we, we don't kind of have that, that traditional infrastructure there. So it meant that Uber was great mm. for us, but it didn't really make sense to enter cities that have um, a taxi culture, which is what we, we have in Dublin. The reason that Uber was not allowed to come in is because we have a taxi licensing system that Uber was forced to honor. So now the only people who are allowed to use the Uber app in Ireland are registered taxi yeah. drivers. Yeah, interesting. What about you, Mike? Is, you know, we've got Uber, we've got Lyft, publicly listed companies. Ever any interests or thoughts of adding them to the shortlist? No, I wouldn't back them. Um, I think Anne-Marie kind of said this point throughout her analysis there in that a VC-backed Uber or a VC-backed Lyft where they're subsidizing rides and spending investor money to gain reach and gain customers is a very different entity to a taxi company, essentially. Yeah. And uh, Rory used to always say this, that they kind of sold us this lie of, oh, you can basically afford your own personal chauffeur because yeah. we're spending Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz's money on you getting a taxi home to this evening for five quid instead of what should be 30 quid. Mm. And and I, I think that's, that's it, it's it's almost kind of a study on like post disruption what happens yeah and, and and this is where it is where it's like uber did the disrupting it broke up the taxi business it it gained that market share and i think it gained like it it, it created habits amongst especially kind of younger generations of accepting this kind of convenience and and now the now the bottom is kind of falling out of it because it was never a sustainable business model in the first place so yeah I'm not sure where it goes from here in terms of once a customer is used to a level of convenience, it's hard for them ever to go back. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, it's that race to zero. We see it with other industries like, I suppose, the brokerage industry, which is obviously one we're quite adjacent to. And you know, when everybody's racing to zero and subsidizing fees and things like that, uh, it does come to a point where it's just not viable for any of them anymore. Let's move on then. And don't forget, as I mentioned at the start, if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. Mike and Anne-Marie are going to both going to pitch me companies. I'm going to pick one of them and we're going to hear the full pitch for that company. You can only find that in the My Wall Street app. You can download it on iOS or Android and just create a free My Wall Street account then. There's a link for that in the notes for today's show. Uh, funnily enough, one of the recently extended elevator pitches that featured on this podcast recent just this week became the new stock addition to our shortlist. Mike, it was a company you pitched. Can you give us any very subtle hints to what's the company you added? Um, no, sign in, Just create an account, see it for yourself. I'm <laughs> <laughs> giving away too much for free on this podcast. <laughs> ever, ever the salesman. Okay, let's move on and dig into the mailbag. Um, and something that's been dominating the news recently is the fact that the US dollar and the euro have reached parity in terms of value for the first time in about 20 years. Um, we're in the midst of earnings season and already we've seen a lot of companies mention the effects of the strong dollar on their profits. Um, IBM do, uh, did a few days ago. Netflix actually mentioned it last night as well. Mike, can you ex- briefly explain why the dollar is performing so well at the moment and what does that mean, I suppose, in, in real terms for investors and why does it affect these companies so much? Yeah, I think that there's one main reason and then maybe one smaller reason. I think that the war in Ukraine has an outsized effect on what's happening in Europe right now, yeah. especially in the energy sector. But the main cause is that uh, the dollar's rise has been because of the actions of the Fed. It's been much faster to react and much more aggressive with its rate hikes compared to other central banks around the world. 
in this effort to fight inflation. And what's happening now is that it's actually working because the dollar's achieved parity against the euro. So all European imports are now about 20% cheaper straight off the bat. Um, there's a lot of implications to this. Uh, strong dollar goes much further than just a cheaper holiday for American tourists or Anne-Marie suddenly getting 20% <laughs> richer. Um, but I actually, you mentioned it with the earnings season already, Netflix and IBM have have mentioned significant earnings losses because of it. I think it's going to be one of the key themes, especially for large US multinationals. So if you're on Netflix, you're reporting dollars, but you take in 60% of your income from other currencies, it's going to feel the pinch, you know? Microsoft, Salesforce, Costco, they've all warned of reduced profits as well. So yeah, it's, it, it will see a lot of it. Um, the Morning Brew actually shared an interesting rule with Tom this week. It said that an 8 to 10% jump in the dollar causes US company profits to drop by 1% on average. So I think yeah. that'll be a very common kind of excuse from uh, from here on out. Yeah, so keep an eye out for that one uh, this earnings season. As Mike said, I'm sure we'll, we'll hear a lot of things being blamed on it, just like inflation was in the in the last earnings season. Um, thanks a million for that, Mike. Let's move on to the elevator pitch then. So I'm going to ask both of you guys to pitch me a company that's on your watch list. I'm going to pick one, and then in the extended version, we're going to get the full pitch from one of you guys. Uh, Mike, I'll keep you on your roll there. What company are you pitching me today? Uh, the company I'm pitching is called Aptive. So it produces... What 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 amounts to the operating system for your car? So these systems they're called advanced driver assistance systems. They're actually seen as a precursor to autonomous driving. So kind of encapsulates automatic brake detection, autonomous cruise control, like the stuff that keeps you in your lane, blind spot monitoring, all those kind of like dings and dongs that go off in the car if you're moving <laughs> less than one feet. I, out of I a believe that's line. the technical term. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, it's an interesting business. It, it's got three main areas of focus. So like safety measures, as we mentioned, uh, efficiency and green efforts. So it's big in terms of electric vehicles and the architecture that's involved in the in the computers there. And then connected vehicles. So essentially making your car a smart car. Uh, not not the tiny cars, but the, like, you know, <laughs> like a smart home, a smart car. Um, it also owns 50% of an autonomous driving startup called Motional through a joint venture with Hyundai. This is actually, I was surprised to hear this number. It's provided over 100,000 self-driving taxi rides with zero at-fault at incidents. So it's actually quite a ways along yeah. there. And uh, while this all sounds a bit wish, wishy-washy, it actually took in $15 billion in revenue last year. So it's a very wow. legit company. This one, uh, yeah, this one might make it to the long pitch eventually. We'll see. Wow. Okay, interesting. Um, Anne-Marie, what about you? What company are you pitching this week? I'm kind of pitching a, a company in response to a company that Rory pitched two weeks ago, maybe okay. three weeks ago, which was On Holdings, which is a shoe company that's been uh, made popular by Roger Federer and is kind of, you know, one of these companies that claims to have cutting edge shoe technology. Mm. Um, that got me interested in kind of up and coming running shoe companies. And one of the ones we talked about was called Haka, um, which is a French running shoe company. So I went to take a look at them, but they are actually owned by Deckers, um, which also owns Uggs, Teva, Mozo, and Sinook, which is another sandal company. So yeah, they're a really interesting business. You'd be surprised how much money you generate from Uggs every year. <laughs> um, would not have known that. But um, yeah, generated $3 billion. Last year, they're kind of beginning to diversify out their portfolio. They're in a really interesting phase. And uh, yeah, I kind of like them. I like them better than Rory's pitch. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Is that is that is that payback after the time you robbed Rory's pitch? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, both sound like really interesting companies, especially the dings and dongs of uh, after. But uh, I, I, I can't pass up the the chance to talk about Uggs for an extended period of time. So, Henry, yeah. <laughs> let's go with Deckers. So, guys, this is where we're going to leave you today. However, if you want to hear the full pitch from Anne on Deckers as an investment and see what we think about the company that owns the likes of Uggs and Hooker, please jump on over to the My Wall Street app now and you can listen to the rest of this conversation for free. There's a link in the notes for today's show. All you have to do is set up a free account and you can listen to this episode along with all of our past episodes of Stock Club and more great investing content. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle on future episodes of Stock Club, you can always get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com street.com if you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on thanks for joining us today i won't talk to you next week as i'm taking a few weeks off but i'm going to leave you guys in the capable hands of michael matney so he and the rest of the stock club crew will talk to you then Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.